Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. The first book of the Bible is Genesis, and then uh, the next book right after that is Exodus. So find Exodus chapter 3, and in a minute here, 30 seconds perhaps, I'm going to read to you the first eight verses of this chapter, and you'll recognize immediately, if you spent any time in church, you'll recognize immediately the story of Moses and the burning bush. Moses and the burning bush. And uh, if you have never heard that story before, I'll do my best to just give you a synopsis. But we've often heard this story, Moses and the burning bush. And then we're going to talk today about what it means for us, for us to meet with God. I, a couple of Sundays ago, back in December, I, I remember making a statement that I, I now regret. Uh, I do that from time to time. And so this sermon is, uh, is, an, is an attempt to be an explanation to the previous sermon that I'm not going to refer to, but just I want us to know what it is to experience God's manifest presence, to meet with Him, to have that extraordinary work that He longs to do in each of our lives. God is far more interested in working in us than we are interested in having His work done in us. And um, this story illustrates that for us very well. And I will continue it this evening. Uh, we'll look at chapter 4, maybe end of chapter 3, chapter 4 to, uh, this evening as well. So come back this evening if you would. Exodus chapter 3, let me read to you the first eight verses. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked... And behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, This is God speaking, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land, into a good land, and a large, and to a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hevites, and the Jebusites. And we'll cover just those verses this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to consider Moses and his meeting with God. And I'm asking that you would do an unusual refreshing uh, among us in, in the next few months, uh, starting today, that you would do that work of grace in my life, in our hearts, to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, to shake us out of complacent Christianity, and to pull us up onto, a, onto that solid rock where we can be bold proclaimers of truth, where we can be confident in Christ, where we can use all of the skills and talents and abilities that we've given you uh, for your honor and for your glory. 
And so we ask for your help this morning, and we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We have a, a problem in the United States, and I, 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 I'm, there's a lot of different solutions, or a lot of different people who diagnose the problem, but let me tell you what I think the biggest problem is. We don't know what our problem is. We all have our ideas, we all have some suggestion, sometimes it's political, sometimes it's in education, sometimes it's economic, and we think if we could just solve that problem, America would be a better place. But I can tell you from the Word of God what our problem is in the United States. Our problem is powerless Christianity. It's churches that are weak. And churches are weak because the people, the Christians that compose those churches, are apathetic. Uh, maybe even if we can use this term, we can be spiritually comatose. We're in a spiritual coma. It's as if we are not alive. Now, we are alive by God's grace. And the life that God has given us is eternal life. So nobody can take that life away from us. But we can certainly appear to be lifeless. Um, Isaiah saw this same problem in his day. In Isaiah 59, here's how God describes the society of Isaiah's day. Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. In other words, makes himself a target. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment, and he saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no intercessor. There's a problem in Isaiah's time. Judgment was failing. People were being mistreated. And instead of God's people crying out to him, God looked around and there wasn't any intercessor. And we, that is the people in this room, we cannot be content to be a church filled with apathetic and comatose Christians. The, the obstacle to that life-giving Christian living that we want to flow out of us. Jesus talks about out of our belly shall flow rivers of living water. The, the obstacle to that is not the wickedness of the wicked. It's the apathy of the Christian. The wicked are never going to stop God. God's always going to have his way. So when God's people are powerless, it's not because of the enormity of the wicked. It's because of the carelessness of the Christian. Now, I'm going to use a couple of terms, and maybe you've heard these terms before, maybe you haven't. Um, but I'm going, to sort of, I'm going to use them interchangeably, and I want to sort of give you some idea of what I mean by them. And then as you hear them, you can see how they fit a, a pattern. I've already mentioned the term to meet with God. To have a meeting with God. To meet with God simply means this. You have a relationship with God so that God is real and tangible to you. Now, in this account from history, Moses literally met with God. There was a burning bush, and God spoke to... God was not the burning bush, you understand, but God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. And Exodus 34 tells us that there was no other prophet in, 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 in all of Israel like Moses... Because with Moses, God spoke to Moses face to face. Now, I'm not asking you to seek a face to face encounter with God. That, that's, that's not what I mean when I say to meet with God. But I do mean that you realize that the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, because if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit goes everywhere with you. To realize that the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you is a person, 
I, I really struggle with that term, but that's the theological term. That means he has personality. He's not human like you and I, but he has personality and he cares about what you do and what you think and what you say. He, he wants to see you change into the image of Jesus Christ. And when you realize that, and that's tangible to you, it changes the way you live. You can't just pick up a, 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 a tablet or watch television and just watch whatever you want because the Holy Spirit's there watching with you. You can't just go where you want because the Holy Spirit goes with you. You can't just say anything. I don't know about you, but one of my besetting sins is to open my mouth and say before I think. And I, 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 I don't want to be that type of person. And you know what? The Holy Spirit can be that guard over my lips, can be that sentinel at my heart. And if I will be aware that the Holy Spirit is real, He's there with me, I'm much more careful about what I say. That is what it means to meet with God. I, I'm going to talk about the manifest presence of God. Now, understand, God's presence is everywhere all the time. That's what the Bible teaches us. God's presence is here with us right now. It was with us last Sunday. It was, it's wherever you live, that's where God's presence is. Wherever you work, God's presence is there. As you're driving down Interstate 80, guess what? God's presence is there too. In fact, as much as the uh, uh, Travis Air Force Base has guards and gates and, and, and walls, God's presence is everywhere on that Air Force Base. God is everywhere. But the manifest presence of God is a little different because when I talk about the manifest presence of God, I mean you know God's there. There's a difference between, yeah, God's here, and I know God's here. It's not a difference in who God is. It's not a difference in God's presence. It's a difference in how you treat God. It's a difference in how you respond to life. We call it the manifest. I've heard other people use the term manifest presence of God. The manifest presence of God, this meeting with God, is an extraordinary experience of God's presence. You know what the ordinary experience of God's presence is because you live it every single day. That's the ordinary experience of God's presence. We're talking about an extraordinary, an extraordinary experience of God's presence. And what I see in the Word of God, that's most important. What I see in the Word of God, and also additionally what I see in church history is whenever God's people meet with God, whenever God's people have a manifest presence of God in their life, it changes who they are. It changes what they do. And almost invariably, it also changes the people around them. Now, we always like to start with changing the people around us. I'm sure I could go down and you could all tell me somebody in your life you wish would change. Yeah, I see some of you husbands bumping your wives. I, I see that. Yeah I, yeah, I did. I, they're over here. I'm not going to look over here. <laughs> we always can think of the other person, right? When I was a teenager, I wish God would change my parents, right? And now I'm a parent, and I wish God would change my teenagers, right? We always think it's the other person that's the problem. And I tell you, when we experience the manifest presence of God, we are humbled. And we realize the changes God wants to work in my life, in your life. And then it spreads from there. That's what we, when I mean, when I say the manifest presence of God, when I talk about meeting with God, when I talk about that extraordinary 
work of God. That's, that's what I'm talking about. So this morning, I just want to cover, if we, if we want to have that meeting with God, if we want to have an extraordinary work of God in our life, what do, what do we need? What is it that we're shooting for? What is our target? Well, here's the first thing. We have to come to the end of our own devices. We have to come to the end of our own resources. If you've been reading Proverbs this week, you read Proverbs 19, there are many devices in a man's heart. That's what the Bible says. There are many devices in a man's heart. And we try one thing and it doesn't work, so we try something else and that doesn't work, and we try something else and that doesn't work, and eventually we do one of two things. We either give up or we die trying. God doesn't want that. God wants us to turn to Him, realizing our devices are never going to accomplish His will. Now let me show you this in Moses' life. Uh, hold your place there in Exodus 3 and turn over to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who's going to be martyred, he's giving his last speech, if you will, his final words. And in Stephen's speech to the council, to the Sanhedrin, he tells us a little bit about Moses' history that's not covered completely in Exodus. And I want you to see some details about Moses' life that will help you understand that if we wish to have the extraordinary presence of God in our lives... If we would have that meeting with God, we first have to come to the end of our own devices. Acts chapter 7, I'm going to pick it up in verse 23. Acts 7, 23, Stephen says to the council, and when he, that's Moses, and when Moses was full, 40 years old. Now, how many of you are younger than 40? Okay, how many of you feel like 40 years is old? Okay. Now, I could ask the question the other way. How many of you are over 40, right? How many of you feel like 40 is young? Okay, but the, my, point in not, my point is that Moses thought, I'm ready. I'm 40 years old. I know what God's called me to do, and I'm ready to do it. So let's see what he does. When Moses was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Remember, he'd been brought up in the princess's palace. So he had to leave that place to go visit the Israelites, his, his brethren, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. He literally killed the Egyptian. You remember the story. That is counted for us in Exodus. Here's verse 25. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God, by his hand, by Moses' hand, would deliver them. He thought, I'm going to kill this Egyptian guy. And the other Israelites are going to see this and they're going to say, this is it. This is our chance to escape slavery. We can be done with this oppression. And they were going to rise up with Moses and they were going to get out of, the, out of Egypt and get to the promised land. End of verse 25. But they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them, unto the children of Israel, as the two children of Israel, the two Israelites, fought each other, strove, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, thrust Moses away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord 
in a flame of fire in a bush. And verse 30 tells us, or verse 30 brings us to the point we were in Exodus chapter 3. Notice what happens. 40 years old, Moses goes out. He says, I'm going to lead these people out of Israel. I'm going to kill this Egyptian who is, who is oppressing my Israelite brother, and I'm going to lead these people out of Israel. But instead, the Israelites themselves said, we know what you did. You killed that Egyptian yesterday. And we know who to tell. We're going to tell Pharaoh. And Moses ran for his life. And did you catch how many years was Moses in the wilderness as a shepherd? He was in there in the wilderness for 40 years. Does that seem like a man who's given up? I think he'd given up. He was content. I'm just going to be a shepherd. I thought, I thought I knew what God wanted me to do, but no, no, I must, I must have had it wrong. I'm just, I'm just going to give up. No, God still had a plan for Moses, but he wanted Moses to come to the end of his own devices. He wanted Moses to come to the end of his own plans, the end of his own abilities. And in my life, I have seen over and over and over how it's not until I come to the end of my own plans, my own devices, my own abilities, and I say, God, if I'm ever going to accomplish this work, I need your help. And then God says, why didn't you ask sooner? God wants to help me. He wants to help you. But we're so busy trying to figure it out ourselves. It's like the child that's just learning to tie his shoe. And he really doesn't know how to tie his shoe. And it just ends up in knots. And then he brings his knotted shoe to you and he says, I can't get this undone. And you say, yeah, I, I can tell you what you did wrong. You didn't get help to begin with. How much God must feel like that? And if we're going to experience the manifest presence of God, if we're going to experience that extraordinary work in our lives, we've got to come to the end of our own abilities the end of our own capabilities and realize that our future, our family's future, our church's future, our nation's future is in the hands of an almighty, all-wise God. And we're just coming alongside to accomplish the work that he puts in our hands. By his power, we're going to accomplish that work. Secondly, we have to experience that manifest presence of God. Now, I can guarantee if you are a Christian today, you experience the manifest presence of God at one point in your life, and that was at the point of salvation. And if you can remember that day, when, if I can use this metaphor, the light bulb went on in your head and you realized, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, the sinner is me. I'm the one who broke God's law. I'm the one who's under the righteous wrath. I'm underneath the righteous wrath of a holy God. That's me. And instead of judging me, God sent his son, Jesus, to die in my place. Boy, that, that day you met with God. You experienced God's mercy for the first time. Again, God's mercy didn't appear for the first time. It's always been there. But that was the first day you experienced God's mercy. And boy, your heart was just filled with joy. I can guarantee you that. Some people cry. Some people can't quit smiling. Some people just tell everybody. But it radically changed your life. Is your relationship with God 
any different today? Well, no, your relationship with God should be the same. You're still his son. You're still his daughter. But so many of us, we've gotten busy with other things. Sometimes good things. We've got families. We've got jobs. We've got homes. Someone was telling me how they're redoing their deck. Great. I'm glad. Redo your deck. But we get busy, don't we? And we're no longer aware of God's presence in our life. I didn't say God left us. He didn't go anywhere. He's still dwelling right there inside of us, but we're no longer aware of it. And we need to meet with God again. We need God's presence, which is always there. It's always there. We need God's presence to be magnified, to be amplified. Right now in this room, there are all kinds of radio signals passing through this room. And we just don't know it because we don't have the, the right electronic device that will catch that signal and amplify it so that we can hear it. Or if it's a digital signal, we'll need a digital. Yeah, we, I understand that concept. But the point is, is we don't have the receiver. Or if you did have a receiver, you could only tune it to one frequency and that's the only frequency that would be amplified. What we've done in our lives is we've tuned our receiver to a lot of different things. Some people have tuned it to sports. You can tell me right now the two teams that are playing football today and who their quarterbacks are and who their best players are. You can tell me all that because your receiver is tuned to sports. Some of you, your receiver is tuned to the, the economy, to the uh, Standard and poor 500, the S&P 500, right? And you could tell me how much it's gone up in the last 12 months and what the high day was and what the low day was. And you might even be able to tell me some of the companies that make up that index. I have no idea, but your dial is tuned to the economy. Some people, God bless you, your dial is tuned to your family. And we ought to be tuned to our families. There's nothing wrong with that, but we've got our dial tuned to our families, and some of us have it tuned to our job. We've got our dial tuned everywhere, and that's what we're hearing, and God's trying to speak to us, and we're not hearing it because our dial isn't tuned right. You know, there's an interesting story in the New Testament in, in John chapter 12, and I'm just going to read you these verses here. This is Jesus talking in the temple, and he says to the people around him, he says, Jesus says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, talking about his death. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The people therefore that stood by and heard it, heard the voice from heaven, said that it thundered. And some said an angel spoke to him. God spoke to him. God spoke to him. Why did some people say it thundered? Because they had their, tune, their, their receiver tuned to the wrong frequency, didn't they? God spoke out of heaven and they couldn't hear it. And if your heart isn't tuned to the Lord, God could speak out of heaven and you'd say, whoa, thunder, I didn't even know it was raining. You'd miss it because you're not prepared to hear it. Moses hasn't talked to God for a long time. I, I don't know how long exactly because Exodus doesn't give us those details, but Stephen tells us he was 40 years old when he ran away from Egypt. And that for the next 40 years, he was a shepherd in Midian. And my guess is that for that 40 years, Moses hadn't talked to God at all. 
And here's one clue. I can't be conclusive here, but here's one clue back in Exodus chapter 3. When God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush, Moses hides. When do people hide from God? When do people hide from God? When did Adam and Eve hide from God? When they were ashamed of their sin. When they had, they didn't, their relationship, excuse me, their fellowship with God, Adam and Eve's fellowship with God was broken. They didn't want to talk to God. When do you not want to talk to God? When you've got some sin in your life and you don't want to expose it, so you say, okay, I just won't talk to God today. You know, the truth is God already, God already knows. You can't hide from God. But my guess is, that clue says to me, Moses hadn't talked to God for a long time. Moses had decided that whatever God's plan was, it was going to involve somebody else. We know that. It's going to involve somebody else. It's not going to involve me. The only reason he even went by that bush is because the bush was on fire, but it wasn't being consumed. It wasn't being burnt up. And he thought, this is strange. If we're going to experience the, the manifest presence of God, the first thing we have to do is we have to approach God. We have to come to that burning bush, to a God who's always the same, to a God who's immutable, to a God who never changes. We have to come to God and say, God, I need your manifest presence in my life. Now, it's not the act of requesting that all of a sudden God kicks in gear and says, oh yeah, okay, that's right. Yeah, okay, let me see. I got it over here. No, 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 no. That, don't misunderstand. But until your heart is tuned to God's presence in your life, you won't experience the manifest presence of God. Uh, let me just read to you from another church, um, an account from another church. This is from 1962. And uh, let me just read it to you. It's written by Bill McLeod. In 1962, I, this is Bill McLeod, became pastor of a Baptist church of 175 members in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. In Canada, this would be an average-sized church as the country is only about 7% evangelical as compared to 30% in the United States. It was a good church, I thought. We had some university people and some students and quite a few Bible school graduates. Most of our people were young, so I had more marriages than funerals. After I'd been there long enough to get to know the people fairly well, I divided the church into five groups for, for soul winning. Once in every five weeks... Each group would be expected to come and do some house calling and soul, soul winning. And I knew that some would not feel capable of doing this. So I, I left the door open and I said, if you don't feel able to engage in this type of ministry, then just stay home and pray. So the first week, all of them stayed home and prayed. Nobody showed up. And I don't think they were really praying at home either. I thought the problem was they didn't know how to win people to Christ. So I announced classes in soul winning and these lasted for eight weeks and we had good attendance so again i left the door open i suggested if they didn't feel able to go out soul winning just just stay home and pray and the same thing happened as before only two people showed up out of a church of 175 two people showed up and they both were shaking from head to foot and at this point i i, I it dawned on me that the real problem was that the people just did not have a heart to do this kind of thing. And it was then that I began to seriously pray for the manifest presence of God. Five years, I'm reading, five years before the manifest presence of God came to my church, I started a Saturday night deacon's prayer meeting 
at 9 o'clock. Maybe he was a late night person. But who would come to pray at 9 o'clock at night in Saskatoon in the winter? Back to the story. It was understood we would pray for the manifest presence of God in the congregation and in our own hearts. We had 10 deacons and averaged about 7 at these prayer times. God put a seal of approval on us that first prayer time because the next day, Sunday, we had a powerful moving of the Holy Spirit in the congregation. During the service, here's how he knows the Holy Spirit was moving. During the service, people were leaving the meeting and going downstairs to find a place where they could pray. It was as if God was saying to us, you are on the right track. Now, just stay with it. On another occasion at the deacons meeting, all I said at the beginning was that it was useless to pray if we had unconfessed sin in our hearts. God immediately began to move on hearts, and the men began to make things right with each other. One deacon took another deacon by the hand and went into another room to ask forgiveness. The deacons were even upset with each other. But when the Holy Spirit began to move, who were the first people he changed? The respected leadership of the church. And, and why, I, I just think this through me, why hadn't the respected leadership of the church, why hadn't the deacons made things right before? Because they didn't care. It wasn't like they just suddenly realized, oh, I've got a problem with my brother. They just didn't care. One deacon came to me, that is to the pastor, and wept on my shoulder. Please don't do that. It's really awkward. <laughs> One deacon came to me and wept on my shoulder as he asked me to forgive him for being critical. In those days, I used to tell the congregation, miss Sunday morning if you have to, miss Sunday evening if you must, but never miss the midweek prayer meeting unless you are dead. The prayer meeting became the most exciting and fruitful ministry meeting of the week. It climbed in attendance. Remember, you had a church of 175. It climbed in attendance from 25 to 50 to 75 and kept climbing. Eventually, we had 150 people attending out of a church of 175. Now, I'm going to read you the rest of that story or much more of that story this evening, but let's just consider what we're looking at here. The first thing that this church did because they wanted the manifest presence of God is they approached God and they prayed. And when they prayed, notice what happened. They became ashamed of their sin. Ashamed enough to say, I've got to make this right. If I had something against my brother, I'm going to make it right. If I've got something against the pastor, I'm going to make it right. Something against my spouse, I'm going to make it right. The manifest presence of God is simply God's uncommon and refreshing work in our lives. Now, it's not uncommon because God doesn't desire to do this work, or God is playing peekaboo in the clouds, and sometimes He opens the clouds, hi, I'm here, and then closes them again, and we're sort of waiting, when is he going to open the clouds again? No, no, the manifest presence of God is uncommon because we are too busy doing other things. We're consumed with all kinds of other pressures, and we're not even aware that God, God the Holy Spirit lives right here inside of us. Here in our account of 1962, that church in Canada there's some things happening at that church we don't see in most churches in the United States today. How many of you know a church where the deacons meet at 9 o'clock the night before to pray for the Sunday services? People are getting right with each other. 
People are coming to the midweek prayer meeting. Out of a church of 175, 150 are regularly coming to the midweek prayer meeting. Now, we have a midweek prayer meeting here. I'm not even going to ask how many of you don't know that. We have a midweek prayer meeting here, 7 o'clock. Now, sometimes we split up into a men's group and a women's group, and, and we meet separately, but we always take time to pray. The most important part of that Wednesday night meeting is prayer. The manifest presence of God always highlights His holiness. And God's holiness always humbles humans. As Moses approaches the burning bush, what is God's instructions to him? Take your shoes off. Because the place you're standing on is holy ground. God's holy, and God can only be approached by righteous people. And I have good news for you. We don't approach God because of our own righteousness. We approach God because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have the righteousness of God by faith, we're told. We have the righteousness of God by faith, not our own righteousness. Yet you know, if you've experienced that extraordinary work of God before in your life, that as soon as you begin to approach God, as soon as you get serious about prayer, as soon as you say, okay, God, I want to see your extraordinary work in my life, invariably God says, okay, well, first you have to confess. And then you name it. I don't know what your sin is. I know what my sins are. I, I do. I know what my sins are. And that's where we usually turn aside and we say, you know, God, hold that thought, right? And then we go back to tuning our radio back to sports or the economy or our families, and that's a good thing, or, you know, even church activity. I know people who are very busy in the church to cover up sin in their life. Now, I don't know if those people here at Elmira, because if I did, I'd be approaching them. But just last night, someone was telling me about a man who was very active in the church, and he was covering up sin. Don't cover your sin. God already knows about it anyway. And I don't need you to tell me. I don't need you to come up after the service and tell me what your sin is. I need you to talk to God about it. He already knows. I can't hide anything from God. Confession is not me telling God something he did not know. Confession is me agreeing with God that things are not right in my life. And saying, God, I need your forgiveness. And every time we ask God to forgive us, he does. Every time. Let me read to you a different account. This comes from China about 100 years ago now. And this is an eyewitness account by Dr. Murdoch McKenzie. Dr. Murdoch McKenzie was described as a level-headed Scotsman who held to strictly Presbyterian ways. Quote, as Mr. Goforth's object in these meetings was not a manifest presence of God among the heathen, but a manifest presence of God among the Christians, it was necessary for us to call in the central st into the central station, the central mission station, all who could come from the seven counties in this district. As to Mr. Goforth's sermons, they were simple gospel talks, straight home to the heart, well illustrated with incidents from Korea, Manchuria, other places that Goforth had been. On Monday morning, his text was from Revelation 3.15. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. After the sermon, an opportunity was given for prayer when several broke down in tears, unable to proceed in prayer. One of these was Mr. Fan, 
assistant teacher in the girls' school, he made public confession of his sins and asked God's forgiveness. In the afternoon, the text was from John 11.30, Take ye away the stone. It's a reference to the resurrection of Lazarus. Take ye away the stone. And a powerful appeal was made to all to allow nothing to hinder them from receiving God's blessing. After that address, an opportunity was then given for prayer, and thereupon followed such a scene as I had never seen before, nor again do I expect to see. A man started to pray, but had not said more than half a dozen words when another, and then another joined in, and in a moment, the whole company was crying aloud to God for mercy. All the sin of the past was stirring them in the face, and they were crying in anguish to God for mercy. Sometimes you think, well, of course, this guy went to a Pentecostal church. That's why I told you up front, he's a Scotsman. He's a Presbyterian. Presbyterians don't act this way. Some were praying for help to confess their sins and to allow nothing to be unconfessed. Some could only sob, oh God, forgive me. Some, sometimes one who had wandered far away from God and now came back to him publicly confessing his sin would ask for the prayers of the people. And, and I, I, I end the quote there, but he goes on to say, and people would gather around that one and pray for him to have victory over that sin. The holiness of God always brings to us a sense of our own sinfulness and a burning desire to clear our own conscience, not primarily to each other, but clear our conscience before a holy and a holy forgiving God. And so frankly, we don't like God's holiness. Because I don't know about you, I like to think I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good, good guy. I'm a pretty nice guy. What would I have to confess to God? Well, it comes, turns out there's a lot. Don't miss this next point. Elmira Baptist Church will not experience the manifest presence of God until we intensely desire to experience the extraordinary work of God, even though it costs us something. That's where we usually stop. We walk up, we find out how much it costs to approach the burning bush, we realize we've got to take the sandals off our feet, and we say, you know what, I'm just going to leave my sandals on. And we look around and we see every other Christian has his sandals on too, so we must be okay. And as long as you and I as long as you and I are satisfied with average Christianity, with just mediocre Christian living, with just going through the motions, as long as we're content and we're self-satisfied that we have the right doctrine, as long as we are content to be neither hot nor cold, we will not experience the manifest presence of God. We won't. If you're visiting today and you think, this guy is strange, that's because the manifest presence of God is so uncommon in our country. People think we can organize our way out of our problems. People think we can vote our way out of our problems. People think we can educate our way out of our problems. Do you realize how, deep, how deeply America has offended a holy God? And you think we're going to educate our way? to success and the glory of God in our land? It's because Christians, we've been satisfied to be neither hot nor cold. The 
cost of experiencing the manifest presence of God is our own is our own pride. As long as I'm satisfied that I'm good, it's that person who needs to change. I'm good. It's that person that's the center. I'm good. It's those people that have the problems. Then I'm not going to experience the manifest presence of God. I'm not going to meet with God. To experience the manifest presence of God will cost us our iniquities. We must hate our own sin and we must hate our own disobedience enough to confess and to forsake it. Proverbs 28.13, you're going to read it next Sunday. Proverbs 28.13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. To experience God's manifest presence, we'll have to give up our pride, we'll have to give up our iniquities. To experience God's manifest presence will cost us our laziness. I am just as lazy as the next guy. And if I can do the least amount of work just to get by, I know I'm going to heaven anyway. What does it matter? That hinders the manifest presence of God in my life. To experience the manifest presence of God, we give up our pride, our iniquities, we give up our laziness. And when this happens, when we come to the end of our own devices and we realize our desperate need for the extraordinary work of God, then, and only then, we will act. We will do something. And we often call this, those people who read and, and study these things, we call this a revival. But the revival is simply God's people tuning their hearts to hear God's already there presence in their lives. It's only God's people coming to the end of themselves and saying the problem is me. Not her, not him, not those guys, not these people. The problem is me. God, forgive me. And then as we realize the manifest presence of God, then we act. Then we act. How will we how will we impact our community for Jesus Christ? It'll be when you and I are awestruck by an infinite God. And we're so amazed at His mercy and His grace that we just tell everybody about it. If you knew, if you knew that there was a guy in Vacaville who was just randomly giving away $1,000 to whoever would ask him, I'm guessing you would tell your friends about that. You'd say, hey, there's a guy. You go down there, that place, and you turn right at that, and then you go up to the door, and you knock on the door, and when the guy comes, you say, I would like $1,000, and he says, here, I have $1,000. My guess is if you'd experience that, you would tell everybody, go get your $1,000. I get emails about it all the time. You don't? <laughs> now, that's a joke. The seriousness is we would tell people, it's great. You can get your own money. We've got something better than money. We've got God's forgiveness. Amen. We've got God's grace to change our lives. When's the last time you told someone about that? Psalm 63. We're going to come back to this chapter tonight. Psalm 63. says, O God, Thou art my God, early will I seek Thee, my soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power 
and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Here's a man who's desperate for God, desperate for God's manifest presence, desperate to meet with God so that he can see God's power and see God's glory. Now, why do I think that Elmira Baptist Church can experience the manifest presence of God? Why do I think we can experience a meeting with God? Why do I think we can experience the extraordinary work of God in our lives? Why do I think we can experience that in 2024? Because God is faithful. I believe it. Because God is faithful. And he says, turn unto me, and I will turn unto you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. God stands waiting to pour out his refreshing work in our lives, but you know what hinders it? We do. Just this past week, uh, no, past month, several weeks ago now, I was talking with another man, uh, Tim Schmidt. He'll be with us in, in uh, April. And he had met a pastor in Rhode Island. And this pastor in Rhode Island was just convinced. He was just convinced that there was no real point in praying for God to, to pour anything out. We just needed to hold on till the rapture. We're in the age of apostasy. Um, you know, America is so bad, we're just, just going to hold on until Jesus comes back. And I don't know how or where Tim Schmidt doesn't know exactly, but this pastor met with God. And he said, we got to do something different. And this was only in... 2017, I believe, maybe 2018. It was, it was just a few years before the pandemic. We've got to do something different. And since that time, in the last six or seven years, his church in Rhode Island has planted two more churches in Rhode Island. They've knocked 40,000 doors. You say, what would, what would possess someone to do that? You believe that God is real. And that other people need to hear about this God who's real. And that got me thinking. Why couldn't Elmira Baptist Church in the next six or seven years plant two more churches in California? I don't know. How many of you have been to Rhode Island? I've not. But I understand it's just as godless as California. It's not the heart. It's not the buckle of the Bible belt. A.W. Tozer said this. I refuse to be discouraged about anything, but it gives me heavy heart to walk among Christians who have wandered for 40 long years in the wilderness, not going back to sin, but not going on into the holy life, wandering in a nameless circle, sometimes hotter, sometimes colder, sometimes a little holier, and sometimes very unholy, but never going on. To me, this is a terrible thing, he said. And if you're content with Elmira Baptist Church the way that it is, if you're content with Elmira Baptist Church the way that it is, it's going to become very uncomfortable for you in the next few months. Not because I'm going to make it uncomfortable, but because I, I know God wants us to step up and do more for Him. And we're not going to do more for Him without His manifest presence, and His manifest presence is going to cause us to examine ourselves and to find our own sin and to either confess it or say, I don't want a part of this. You remember that verse in Acts? Acts chapter 17, 6. These that have turned the world upside down have come hither also. These that have turned the world upside down. 
I want God to use Elmira Baptist Church to turn Elmira upside down. I don't know if you know this. I talked to Larry and Nita. Uh, Nita particularly uh, 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 was a part, her brother Larry, uh, also a part of a revival that happened in that building over there with the steeple 60 years ago out of which this church was born. If you don't believe in revival, then tell me, what is this church doing here? I want to I see Elmira turned upside down again. But that's not going to happen without God's extraordinary work. I want to see Vacaville turned upside down. I'm not content with this little... I want to see Vacaville turned... I want to see Dixon turned upside down. I want to see Fairfield and Winters. I want to see Davis turned upside down. But we're not going to do it without the manifest presence of God. Which means we're not going to do it without a different type of praying church. I've been asking God to make Elmira Baptist Church the type of church that prays to move mountains. The type of church that prays to move mountains. So you say, well, where do you get this idea? Because I believe God still moves mountains. God is faithful. I'm asking you that are serious about making, excuse me, serious about experiencing the extraordinary power of God in your heart. I'm asking you to go home this afternoon and make time to pray. Now, I know there are NFL games on. Uh, maybe NBA, I don't know what all is on, on your... Uh, you're going to have to decide where you're going to tune your receiver. Now, some of you may have a really urgent matter and some things are an ox in the ditch and I understand that. But most of us, we could make time to pray this afternoon if we wanted to. If we wanted to. And if you want to experience the power of God in your life, it's going to take more than an afternoon of prayer. Don't, don't misunderstand me, but it's going, to, it's going to start somewhere. It's going to start with you going home and praying for me and praying for yourself and praying for this church. I know, I know that I need a fresh sense of the manifest presence of God in my life. And my guess is that many of you also recognize you need a fresh sense Again, God did not go anywhere. He didn't abandon you. He hasn't been off on a vacation. We've, been having our, we've had our dial tuned to the wrong station. And we realize I need to find that right station. I need to have the manifest presence of God in my life again. Some of us, in fact, I'm sure all of us, some of us more than others, we're gonna, we need to take our shoes off because we're on holy ground. I'm not speaking literally. I'm speaking metaphorically. We need to take our shoes off because we're on holy ground. God wants to do something here. But if we're going to hold on to our pride and our iniquities, if we're going to hold on to our laziness, we're just holding back God's manifest presence. So go home this afternoon. If you want to meet God, go home and tell Him that. Say, God, I would normally be doing this at this hour, but I'm going to set aside this time because I want to meet with you. I encourage you fathers, if you have children at home, gather your children. We need, our family needs, the manifest presence of God. Number two, confess sin. Again, God's going to start putting his finger on things. And I know what, I know, I know myself, I say, well, I can never give that up. But are you willing for God to make you willing? Willing? 
That's my question. Maybe you can't give it up. Maybe it just seems too big of a problem. But would you say to God, God, this is a sin. I've got to get rid of it. Now, I am convinced that God's victory is always sufficient. But just set that aside for a minute. Just would you go home and pray about it? Would you ask God to forgive you and to give you true repentance that will change your life? And then come back. I, I don't need, we're going to give an invitation in a minute. And Scotty's going to lead us in a song. But I don't need you to come to the front this morning. I need you to come back tonight. Because there's more to this story. And those of you that know Moses, know at the end. You know what Moses said? You know, God, you just need to find someone else. That's what he says at the end. I don't want that to be our church. Because God will find another church. God will find another Christian. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need you. I want to be a part of what God's doing in California. I want the people of Rhode Island to say, did you hear about the church in California? Six, seven years ago, they were just trucking along, doing fine, and all of a sudden, they met God. Father, my heart is heavy for myself and for my sisters, my brothers that are here this morning. Because I don't want, I want the message to be from my heart to their hearts. But more importantly, I want the message to be from your spirit to our spirits. I don't want people to be emotionally touched. I want them to be spiritually touched. I want you to take us. We're apathetic. We're, we're comatose. We're on spiritual life support. And I want you to make us alive again. Wilt thou not revive us again? Wilt thou not revive us again? That, the, that your glory may be seen in California. That your power would be seen in Elmira. Father, burden all of us. Burden all of us to desire that manifest presence of God in our lives that changes us from the inside out, that drives us to prayer. Help us, Father. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.